Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church Adult Sunday School where we're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism and we've arrived at question number four, which we'll get to in a minute. It's a great privilege for me to uh, to teach this class uh, this morning. This is a, a subject that has been near and dear to me and I've had the privilege of teaching on it and it's it's changed me as I've studied. I often... Uh, and hopefully I can convey this, but um, as I've studied, it's led to, to praise and worship, doxology. And I hope I can convey that to you. Uh, but, but there's a lot to cover this morning. That's one of the reasons why I started a couple of seconds early with the introductions. Um, it's chock full. It'll be challenging, uh, hopefully intellectually stimulating. Uh, but, but strap in and put your thinking caps on. And uh, why don't we pray real quickly? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would uh, warm our hearts and our affections towards you as we study and learn about you. We pray that you would draw us near to you uh, through this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So question number four, what is God? And I'll, I'll get you guys to do what we've been doing up to this point because it may be the only time. Uh, but if you'll repeat after me with the answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That is our question. In reality, what we are studying this morning is the doctrine of God, which uh, as Pastor David mentioned last week, uh, also known as theology proper. And even though we are studying it through the lens of the Shorter Catechism, which was designed to be targeted towards young believers, new believers, and, and maybe children, uh, the reality is that we are, uh, we are diving into one of the grandest of all topics that we could study. And when you dive into deep water, you never know what you might find. So, uh, make sure, may, I had a I had a great story to tell you about this. This is my buddy with the spear gun, and that's a mako shark. Uh, while he's free diving out in the Atlantic Ocean in some deep water, but uh, ask me about that later. So here's what uh, R.C. Sproul has to say about this topic in Reformed theology. We constantly test our doctrine by going back to our fundamental understanding of the character of God. And I really think that that's the central, unique factor of Reformed theology. It is relentlessly committed to maintain the purity of the doctrine of God through every other element of our theology. So why even try? I don't know if y'all can read that. Losing... If at first you don't succeed, failure may be, may be your style. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that, you, you really want to go there? <laughs> uh, so uh, why would we try? Because it pleases God. Uh, how is it that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him if we don't know what kind of God He is? Uh, as, or as John seventeen three says, 
and this is Jesus speaking, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In many ways, this will be our study for all eternity. Here's what I hope to cover this morning, a brief history, a few concepts that I think will be helpful for us as we dive into the, uh, to the topic, and then finally, these attributes of God in the answer for what is God. So with regard to history, in the early church, the, the church, as they began to think about this question, what is God, they were influenced by a lot of the, the great philosophers of the time. And, uh, you know, this is kind of an oversimplification in many ways, but in, in many regards, you had Stoicism, uh, which was more Western, you kind of oriented toward the idea of the material, the things that you can touch and feel. Uh, there was a, you know, you're familiar with Stoics. Some, somebody may accuse me of being a Stoic sometime, but uh, self-mastery, perseverance, uh, there's an idea of things that you can know. And again, uh, kind of Roman, Latin. And then in the East, you have Platonism. I think everyone's probably heard of Plato, uh, where there was an emphasis on the spiritual. And there's this idea that the things that you can't see, that the, there are things beyond what we can see that are actually more real. Um, and, and there's kind of a mystery, and, and there's some... Um, you know, some of the early heresies that plagued the church, Gnosticism was influenced heavily by, by Plato and Platonism in particular, and this was more Greek or Eastern. And then going through the Middle Ages, in addition to having really bad hairdos, uh, they also continued a lot of these ideas with Scholasticism uh, being prominent, which was... Uh, heavily influenced by Thomas Aquinas, who's the fellow on the left in this picture, who had these Thomistic proofs for God. And there was a great reliance on the, on the ability of man to reason, kind of an, uh, uh, an ignoring of sin and, and how that affects our, our minds. But uh, there was a great certainty, a confidence in terms of what we could know. And then... Uh, Continuing on the other side, this mysticism with, you know, a withdrawal from the world and the mysterious and the unknowable. One of the things that did develop uh, during this time period, about the 8th century, were about 18 attributes of God, which are still the attributes that most theologians point to. Uh, and John of Damascus is credited with, with coming up with this list. Uh, and he also identified four categories that you can see here. Along the way, several errors uh, developed, and there are three in particular that I want to highlight as it relates to what we're studying this morning. So with regard to the Trinity, along the way, when people were studying attributes of God, they would ascribe particular attributes to particular persons of the of the Godhead, and that's not what we are going to do, we will apply all of them equally to each person of the Godhead. Uh, another error would be with regard to emphasis, either overemphasizing or underemphasizing things, truths from Scripture, and often errors have occurred as a result of that. 
And you can just imagine in our day, for instance, God is love. Well, you take that and you overemphasize it and you get love is love. And you've heard that phrase used before in our culture. Um, Well, that ignores the fact that God is also holy and he's just and so on. And then another error that we'll seek to avoid is the idea of the mysterious. And during this time, people were pondering questions like, can God make a rock that's so big that he can't lift and things that are just kind of silly and nonsensical. Um, but, but Scripture speaks to this. In, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And so we'll try to keep that in mind. Then along comes the Reformation. There's kind of a recognition of, of these mistakes that have occurred, both, both in the East and in the West. There's a, a regulation of the language that is used as it relates to the doctrine of God. And, and in particular, John Calvin was especially helpful. Uh, it, the Reformation began in the, in the West, uh, and when I say East and West, I'm mainly talking about Eastern Europe and Western Europe, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey would have been the East. Uh, but the, but the, uh, with, with Calvin in the West, uh, most of the, the Reformers were familiar with Western church fathers, but Calvin in particular was familiar with, with the Eastern church fathers, and he was able to glean a lot of, a lot of the good things that had been uh, discussed uh, throughout the, uh, the ages and, and bring that uh, to bear on this topic. So our goal this morning is, is the Goldilocks approach. We don't want to be too hot, too cold. We want to be just right. Uh, we want to be according to Scripture. We only want to go where the Bible goes. We, uh, we want to match the emphasis that the Bible has. And frankly, that's what systematic theology is. It's a prioritization of our doctrines. And we want to, we want to limit our speculation. With, with the history out of the way, we'll move on to some concepts that I think will be helpful for us. Um, I mentioned the improvement of the language. One of those ideas would be with regard to these categories uh, referring to communicable or incommunicable attributes of God. And these may sound like fancy words, but communicable just means that these are things that we as human beings can know. Uh, that we can comprehend, that we have some sense of, we can see and experience. Whereas incommunicable attributes are things that are really not knowable to us. They are are not comprehensible. I mean, if you've maybe at some point in your life daydreamed to try to think about eternity, and at some point your mind just wants to explode because you can't get there, and and that would be an example of, of the incommunicable attributes of God. With regard to uh, this idea of communicable and incommunicable, the reality is that with God, even the communicable are incommunicable. So although we can understand holiness, justice, well, God is infinitely holy and eternally just and unchangeable. And then I change and and I see things changing and um, and, and God's not like that. So uh, there's a sense in which even God is, is incommunicable in his communicable attributes. And then the other thing to note is 
that this reflects God's character of condescending to us and uh, and stooping uh, to us, which is a you know which reflects His kindness. Another important concept is the idea of divine simplicity, uh, also known as aseity, and and the idea is, and this will be maybe most challenging uh, topic that we discuss here, but the idea is there is no distinction of parts, uh, or or there there is no distinction between the attributes and with God. So it's easy, I think, for us to say, to think of an idea like holiness and think of holiness and God when the reality is that the greatest expression of holiness is God. He is holiness. And it's as easy or as right to say that that love is God as it is to say that God is love. Uh, there, There is no separate thing for power, for instance, where God could be measured by. And maybe there's, you know, he's got the most of it. That that's not no, whatever whatever power is, it's it's God. And uh he cannot be measured by his attributes. He is without parts, so there's not a uh, you know, it's not as if God's one one slice justice and one slice holiness and one slice goodness. He's all of these things all together, all at once, although to use the word once or simultaneous is kind of a temporal term, and he's not bound by time. So uh, anyway, what does this mean? It means that God is not lacking. It means that the attributes are who he is. Um, It also means that in many ways these are his names. Uh, so when we use the word goodness, we're we're actually talking about God or justice or so on. This has implications for the uh, for our understanding of the third commandment. And then uh, finally, with regard to concepts, is the idea of logic. Uh, there are terms, for instance, that we will use that are not explicitly stated or used. Immutability is not mentioned in Scripture as far as I know, but the idea is. Um, and the, the divines have a useful phrase for this, by good and necessary consequence. It, it logically follows, and hopefully we can, you know, we can prove that this morning. Finally, Moving on to our uh, our topic here, what is God? Uh, the The first thing to note is we as we look at our list, it's not an exhaustive list. If you were to look at larger catechism number seven, which is the same question, you would see a much longer list with more words, more attributes. Or if you were to look in chapter two of the Westminster Confession. Uh, referring to God, there's a greater description, a more robust description. So this is just a an introduction, uh, as as we've discussed, m- meant for new believers or or for young believers. Another thing to note here is if if you were to go into a room and 
we're tasked with the responsibility of coming up with a list of what is God, you might say to yourself, I'm not sure if this is what the divines did, but I can see how they might have done this, where you might say, well, what did, what did Jesus say about this? And Jesus said, God is a spirit, and, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. I, I'm not sure if, if that's the reason why they started with uh, God as a spirit, but that, that makes sense to me. Um, and then you'll, you'll see that the list is, after, after that, broken up basically between incommunicable uh, at the beginning of the list and then communicable at the end of the list. So what is the Spirit? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but, uh, but Jesus says that God is a Spirit, so we believe that. Uh, we, we, we know that God does not have a body, as the, as the children's catechism says. We, we, we read Scripture where there are references to God smelling things or hearing or seeing, but we never read, for instance, that He eats anything. Um, these are examples of anthropomorphic language where God uses language that we understand. He, re- he references things like body parts that, that, are, that make sense to human beings. And, and we, we, we can get what he's, what he's attempting, what, not attempting, what he's communicating. Herman Bavink says this about God as a spirit. God is a unique substance distinct from the universe, immaterial, imperceptible to the human senses, without composition or extension. Well, why should we care about this? Well, he's not like us, uh, for one thing, as we just read. He is of a substance that is something different and something that we don't know. Here's a trigger warning. We're commanded to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, I don't think there are very many Protestants that have a problem with viewing images, for instance, of the Father that's recognized as a problem. But uh, but maybe images of the Son is another thing. Um, but should it be? It, you know, I think... Uh-oh. You know, maybe we should change some of the some of the hymns we sing, for instance, and can it be where we sing, and Christ my God shouldst die for me. Uh, one of the arguments that's used with regard to uh, images of the second person of the Trinity is that uh, he, he was a man. Well, he, he, he was a man, or he is a man, but he's a man like no other man. Uh, But also, there's an argument that, that this is an enhancement to worship. Now, if, if it's such a good enhancement, then there ought to be a lot more worshipers in Europe because they got a lot of enhancement over in Europe uh, in a lot of their churches, and yet the churches, uh, you know, the Christianity is not doing well in Europe. Here's what Bob Inc. says. Once again, he has a helpful comment. Worship in spirit and in truth is based on the spirituality of God. It alone in principle and forever spells the elimination of all worship. 
Now, if you have any questions about this, please see David, Pastor David, or Pastor John. <laughs> Move, moving on, once again, we, we say, what is infinite? We could say, I don't know. Uh, here's, what, here's what Scripture says in Solomon's prayer with the temple dedication. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and earth... Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. What is infinite? It, it refers to God's omnipresence. And this is a term related to space. Uh, he is without measure with regard to space. In many ways, it's only comprehended in the negative. Uh, he, he cannot be measured. Uh, he cannot be limited or bound. He's unmeasurable. Why does this matter? Well, there are times where it seems that evil abounds, and yet we can be confident that our God is ever-present. Uh, as, as Exodus 31 says, Do not fear or be in dread. He will not leave. He will not leave you nor forsake you. If uh, if we have dear ones that are mourning, as Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There is nowhere that we can go to get away from God. Moving on to eternal, which is closely related to the idea of the infinite, but as it relates to time, God is not limited or, or bound by time. For script, Scripture references, Deuteronomy 32, as I live forever. Psalm 41, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And in, in the New Testament, Second Peter, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand and a thousand as one day. Time does not affect him. This has a, a whole host of ideas. You may say, well, what about uh, you know, the souls of men? They're to be eternal. That is true. Uh, but they have a beginning, and God has no beginning. Why does this matter? How can God fulfill all of his promises if he's not eternal? So maybe there are promises that he has already fulfilled, but if he ceases to exist, couldn't they be undone? Or if he has not fulfilled them yet? If he were to cease to exist, he would be a liar. Uh, so this cannot be the case. This is not consistent, again, uh, a necessary consequence uh, as we read Scripture. Moving on to unchangeable. How do we know God is unchangeable? Because the Bible says so. God says, I am who I am. Or in Malachi, I change not. Psalm 102 says, They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And this would be another good example of, of it logically follows that this is saying God is immutable. He does not change. In many regards, immutability or or the fact that God is unchangeable is the overarching concept that, that infinity and, and eternity fall under. 
so with regard to space, uh, God is unchanging, you know, as infinite, and with regard to time, it's it's eternal, where He is unchanged. And why does this matter to us? Well, we don't believe that God is fickle. We we don't believe that He's temperamental, and we don't believe He lies. Uh, think about all the the implications this would have if we thought that He did change with regard to His plans or with His decisions. His knowledge. God does not gain knowledge because that would mean he would change. There would be a point where he had a lack of knowledge that he gained, uh, but that, that cannot be the case. And certainly with regard to his promises, you know, this is important. We sing about this in one of my favorite hymns, Abide With Me. Change and Decay. And all around I see, O Thou who changest not. Abide with me, which is a sweet comfort for us. Now we move to in his being. Uh, Some commentators, one of the divines I have, uh, I used his book for for this study. He just skips over this phrase. Um, but I do think that there are some some helpful things here to consider. He he is the ultimate being. There there is no becoming, and that kind of goes back to the idea of his immutability. He is the absolute aliveness, if that is even a word. Um, but it's it's helpful for us to consider that you know all of these attributes apply to him. Again, kind of goes back to that idea of the divine simplicity of God. Moving on to wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, often when we think of wisdom, we we think of that phrase from Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That obviously doesn't apply. The Lord does not fear Himself. Um, but, But there is evidence throughout all of creation, both in nature and in law, of the idea of His wisdom. In Scripture, we have numerous examples that point to God's wisdom. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure, which kind of points to the the infinity of the wisdom of God. He is wise in heart in Job. And then Paul refers to God as the only wise God. This would be one of God's intellectual attributes and we think about terms like light and darkness as it relates to the mind uh, that is often used in Scripture, and God is the God is fully alighted in His knowledge, and this would relate to God's judgment and understanding as well. And and again, going to the knowledge, this is another example of the this is a communicable attribute, and yet in reality, it's it's incommunicable in many ways. Uh, with these fancy Latin words, a priori versus a posteriori, we gain our knowledge after the fact. So when we're born, I didn't know what a ball was. And then my mama and daddy taught me what a ball was, and now I know. I've got that knowledge now. Uh, Whereas with God, he's always known. He's always had that knowledge. In other words, incommunicable. Why do we care? 
about this aspect of God, about wisdom. Well, we think of examples like Joseph and his brothers where he says that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God had to be wise to orchestrate those things. Or when we think about Romans 8, 28, how can he work all things if he's not wise to do that? Uh, or have you ever considered in Romans 9, 21 and 22, this is that passage that refers to vessels of uh, objects of wrath made for destruction uh, versus mercy, that we would not know the love of God the way we know God's love if in his wisdom it weren't for the fall. Moving on to God's power, this would be his omnipotence. There are 58 times in Scripture that refer to God as the Almighty or the Lord God Almighty. And this is in reference to him being conquering or prevailing. The idea is God is sovereign. He reigns. He's king. And once again, with regard to his power, he's unlimited. There is no slackening. He does not get grow tired, as the Bible says. He never loses his strength. Often in Scripture, when God's power is referred to, it's in relationship to the idea of blessings and curses as it relates to promises that God has made. A couple of examples would be in Genesis 35, where God's renaming Jacob to Israel. He says, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. You hear this recapitulation of, of the promises or what, what Adam was told. And then in Isaiah 13, wail for the day of the Lord is near. This destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Why do we care? Well, what good is power? I would argue that it is good for war. And we are in a war. Uh, we have enemies, and it's a protection from our enemies. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the, of the Almighty. Hebrews 15, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And in regard to the destruction of our enemies, in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And finally, in Revelations, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Why do we care about God's power? Because it's because of God's power that our enemies will be destroyed and that we will be preserved. Moving on to holiness, the root word here is Hebrew for to cut or to separate. It's a relational term, the idea of how an object relates to another object. And the definition is to be set apart or to be consecrated. There are almost 700 examples of the word holy or holiness in Scripture. With this idea to be set apart in Scripture, the first example would be in Genesis 2, where God says that He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Or in Leviticus, with regard to the law, he says, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. So in other words, this 
this sacrifice that has been consecrated, if an object touches that, it is then made holy. But we see a continuation of that even in the New Testament, in Corinthians, where you see that the unbelieving husband is made holy by the believing wife, or the unbelieving wife is made holy by the believing husband. And, and then it continues with, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it were, they are holy. But it's more than just simply an external uh, morality or perfection. It has to do with a moral perfection as well. And we have examples of this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel where the Lord says that He desires to sanctify His people. And then in a few chapters later, a passage that I think a lot of, a lot of us are familiar with where He says that He will give us new hearts, His people new hearts, so that they might walk in His statutes. In the New Testament, be holy as I am holy. And, and uh, we, we, we remember this in reference to what Pastor David mentioned last week about the indicative and then the imperative. God is holy and therefore we are to be holy. It's not that we save ourselves by being holy. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians, uh, the passage about being filled with the Holy Spirit and our bodies being a temple for the Lord. And how does this relate to God? Well, to paraphrase R.C. Sproul, when the Bible seeks to emphasize something, it repeats words. And we can think about Jesus speaking, and when He intended to emphasize something, He would say things like, Truly, truly, I say unto you. In Scripture, in all of Scripture, there's one attribute where it's repeated three times. Only one and that's with regard to God's holiness. We have at least a couple of examples here where that happens, where we get this glimpse into the heavenly realm, the throne room of God, and in both cases, in Isaiah, a passage that we're familiar with, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And then also in Revelations 4, again we hear, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Closely related to God's holiness is God's justice. And the idea is that He is right. He's righteous or justified. Law-abiding, it relates to kind of a court-type a court type setting, a forensic term. And we know that God is the ultimate judge. In, in Genesis, Abraham says... Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? For Abraham, it's a good and necessary consequence that the, that the wicked are to be put to death, but that the righteous are not to be put to death. Uh, that, that makes sense to him. And I would argue that as image bearers of God, we, we have that same understanding. We, we have a great sense, you know, when the call in the game didn't go the right way. We, we, we feel it. Um, but with God, He is infinitely and eternally and unchangeably just. He is justice. There are kind of two expressions of God's justice in Scripture. Fancy words that Joe probably uses. Remunerative 
which has to do with rewards, and retributive, which has to do with punishment. Uh, the one, rewards, is far more prominent in Scripture, actually. Examples of God's justice in Scripture that uh, you know came to my mind were examples like Joseph and his brothers, where you see reward. You know, they they meant for evil, but after much suffering, God orchestrated so that he would be the second highest position in all of the land in Egypt. Or we have examples like Daniel and the lion's den, where Daniel is saved and rewarded, and and yet the the uh, evil bureaucrats get thrown into the lion's den, I think, with their families. Is that right? And then we see Mordecai and Haman, another great example, uh, where we see rewards and punishment. Another kind of stunning idea that I came across when I was preparing for this is, is the idea that with regard to God's justice, for ordinary violators... When they violate God's law, it results in judgment. But for God's people, God makes covenants. Another aspect of God's justice is the idea that He has no partiality. He shows no partiality to the great or to the small. And there are numerous... I can't give all the, bio, all the, all the scriptural references for all of these ideas, but there are numerous examples throughout Scripture uh, that relate to God's special concern. For the poor, uh, for widows, for orphans, and strangers. Why do we care about this aspect of God's justice. Uh, I want to highlight three great realities. Uh, the first is that every sin is an affront and an assault against a holy God who sees all things and knows all things. Number two is that it's a comfort that one day all of these wrongs will be dealt with. There, there will be a day of judgment, uh, you know, even in the midst of a day where it may seem at times that uh, people are getting away with murder. And then finally, the greatest injustice ever is our greatest reward. I got to get it together because I got too much to cover here. So, um, moving on to goodness from dictionary.com the state or quality of being good or moral excellence. Bob Inc. is helpful here again, and you may be asking, well, what about love and what about grace and all these things? Well, as, as you read various things, someone like Bob Inc. would argue, well, these things like steadfast love, kindness, grace, comfort, forgiveness, and mercy, which you might think of as attributes are, but they, they flow out of his goodness. I think it's one of the most 
understated attributes of God uh, that I think is a key characteristic for us to know and and believe. Um, I think that arguably this is what Satan, what the serpent was getting at in the garden. You know, he called God a liar, but what he was saying he was a a liar about was that he wasn't giving he wasn't giving Adam and Eve the good stuff. He was holding back that that he wasn't really being as good to them as he ought to be. And I think another example that supports this idea is where we read in James. You know, I mean, in this day and age where people are saying, "I don't believe in God," well, you, well, you believe in God? Oh, that's great. I'm encouraged. Well, even the demons believe in God. It's it's what is it that you believe? about God and who he is. And I think I think this idea of goodness is is helpful in in explaining or it was helpful for me in understanding for instance David when you read through a lot of David's prayers in the Psalms um you know it, it almost comes across like he's being pushy. He's demanding. Uh for instance in Psalm 35, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. There's not a question mark at the end. He's telling God to do these things. But I think I think that if you were to go back and search in the Psalms, that what, would you, what you would find is that this is tied to his confidence in God's goodness towards him. And towards God's people. Why do we care? God is the supreme good. As Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. God's goodness is an encouragement in our sufferings, as we've referenced. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Finally, truth. This is a Hebrew word that uh, indicates to make firm, to build, to undergird. It, it's related to terms like veracity, truth, trustworthiness, and faithfulness. And of these, Bob Inc. says you, you, they're, they're so closely associated in Scripture, you can't, you can't split them apart. Uh, with regard to God's truth and faithfulness, God swears by Himself. Genesis 22 by myself have I sworn, and even in Hebrews, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God is true. In Scripture, we see examples of God being true in three different ways. In his essence, you know, there are times where I deceive myself, but God does not. He is true to himself and in himself and in his words. God is true. My words, probably demonstrated this morning, uh, are not always accurate, or they could be better. I could be, uh, you know, more precise with my with my words, but that is not the case with God. And then finally, with regard to intellect, as we mentioned earlier, there is no knowledge that He has to gain. He has all knowledge. His knowledge is true. Numerous scriptural proofs. Proofs that the divines included, I think they were forced to 
add scriptural proofs after the fact, um, but these are the ones, some of the examples that they use for truth. And, uh, and you see that the, the, the theme here is related to God's faithfulness, that when he makes promises, that he keeps those promises, he's true for, for that. Why do we care? Well, what he says, he does. He cannot lie, as, as the Bible says. He keeps his promises, and I would ask or contend, what proof does someone have that he does not? And then finally, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why we should care that he is true. So here's our question and our answer. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And in some real sense, as I mentioned earlier, we will be exploring this question for all of eternity. And to think that that this God took on flesh and bled and died for our sakes. And we get to worship Him this morning. So let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this time we've had this morning to um, to scratch the surface of Your attributes and who You are to uh, to begin to consider the the unfathomable depths uh, of the riches that are found in you, we uh, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light, and we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would prepare our hearts for worship. We ask that uh, that you would enable us to to give worship to you that is pleasing to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.